As we come to the scripture now, let me ask you please to, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It guides us on our way because it gives us the knowledge of God. So we pray that you would work through this word this morning and work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight to equip us with everything good for doing your will. Help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Isaiah, prophet Isaiah, in chapter 11, please. Isaiah chapter 11. I want to read the first uh, 10 verses. Isaiah chapter 11, please. This is the word of the Lord. There shall, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. For he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, you shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then together we say, the grass withers. The flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. During this Advent season, we'll be taking up various passages from the prophet Isaiah. It's a good thing uh, in that Isaiah is often known as the, the, the prophet of the Messiah. He speaks often, at least as he can, in these 65 or so chapters of the coming of this one. Um, we saw it some last Sunday in chapter 2 as we... Uh, realized that, that, that Isaiah was seeing the advents, the comings of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he, he, has, he saw uh, people ascending the mountain of the Lord to be taught of the Lord's ways and to walk in them. And, and there was this, this great chorus of people saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord uh, together. And we saw the end result of that, the end result of people coming to the mountain of the Lord to be taught his ways and to walk in them would bring peace. And while we don't yet see that peace, we know that Christ has come. Oh, we see some measure of peace in our own lives and with the Lord and with each other, but, 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 but not over the whole earth. But we realize that he'll bring that in his second advent. For now, the scripture tells us that we're to watch. And that's an active watching. It's just it's staying alert to, to make sure that we continue to walk in faith. We continue to seek the Lord. We continue uh, to walk in him. And we do that, of course, as we worship, 
Uh, we do that as we study his word. We do that as we pray. We do that as we walk, as he teaches us to walk. And we do that as we witness. For we're the very ones that Isaiah sees saying, come to the mountain of the Lord. Now, if we would have opportunity, and we'll do this a bit, uh, to, to continue on from chapter 2 and just read through Isaiah, we'll, we'll find places to, to pause and to see uh, his prophecy concerning this one is to come. You know, in Isaiah chapter 7, he speaks of this virgin who will give birth to a child. In chapter 9, he speaks of this one who is a light to the Gentiles. Uh, a child is born, a son is given. Um, and upon him, the very government, the very rule of God will rest He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the rule of his kingdom will know no end. And then even as we move forward, we find these wonderful songs about the servant who is to come. One in particular that we know uh, quite well, Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the suffering servant who is to come and to bear the iniquity of his, of his people so that they may, may live. And then in chapter 65, we see this, this great and glorious new heavens and new earth. And so, so it's right for us to spend a little time in Isaiah as we come to this time of year. This particular chapter is uh, another one of those where he speaks of the advents of our Lord Jesus. Now, you remember Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century B.C., active probably uh, between about 740 B.C. and about 700. Remember, we're counting backwards. That's always confusing to me. But we're counting backwards to zero, if you will, in those days. So beginning in the 740s to about 700. You remember that... During much of this time, that Israel as a nation was divided in two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. You might remember that in 722 BC, the Assyrians, the power in those days, the great power, the feared power in those days, uh, came and um, scattered the northern kingdom. It wouldn't be until 586-ish BC that the Babylonians would come and exile the southern kingdom. So they still had a ways to go. But Isaiah was prophesying primarily to these people in the southern kingdom in, in, in Judah. And you might remember that times were not good. That, that as he began, uh, last Sunday we looked at chapter 1, uh, and the people were trying to worship, but God wasn't accepting it. He wasn't accepting it because it wasn't from the heart. Oh, they were doing everything right, bringing their sacrifices correctly and burning the incense that they were supposed to and coming on the right days at the right time, doing all the right things. But it was nauseating to God because at the same time, they were still trusting other gods and not him. And so he, in that sense, rejected uh, their worship. And you might think there'd be no hope at all for them and for us or anyone who comes after. But what there was, as we saw in chapter 2, is... As Isaiah sees this great picture of people going to the mountain of the Lord to learn of him and to walk in his ways and to receive peace. But still, things it seemed relatively hopeless, e- even, for the, even for the prophet. If you'll flip back to Isaiah chapter 6, uh, it's a wonderful chapter about Isaiah's calling when the Lord first called him to be this a prophet. I'll summarize just the beginning of it. You know it. I think we've talked about it from time to time. And then as Isaiah sees this wonderful vision of the Lord and the scripture says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, uh, that means that the vision that 
Isaiah had of God was that God was huge and overwhelming as he ought to be. Because if the train of his robe filled the temple, just the end of it, <laughs> who was wearing that thing? And so, so he was huge. And he sees these angels flying around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. And at that moment in time, the scripture says that, that Isaiah sort of bit the dust. He realized, and this word is translated variously in different versions. Some say that Isaiah says, I'm becoming undone. I'm falling apart. Here in this version, the ESV said, I'm lost. But he recognizes his unholiness in the midst of perfect holiness. And what that does to him is it sort of, it sort of blows everything. And he realizes, I, I, I'm going to die here. Not just physically, but, but eternally. I mean, this is it. Because I've seen the Lord. He says, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. Meaning that everything that comes out of me and everything that comes out of everybody I know is unclean. And, and so how could I ever live having seen the Lord? And then you remember what happens. An angel comes and takes a coal from the altar and presses it against his lips and cleanses him. He says, now your guilt is atoned for. It changes everything. For Isaiah, it changes everything for us as we come to know the atoning grace of our Lord Jesus. It changes changes everything. And, and now then the Lord calls out to Isaiah and says, uh, uh, who will I send? And uh, Isaiah is willing to go. But his message isn't an envious one. <laughs> Notice in the middle of verse 9 in Isaiah 6, here's, his, here's what the Lord says to him. He says, keep, you're going to tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Uh, he's being called to go and preach, but nobody's going nobody's to hear him. Nobody's going to receive him. He says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Uh, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, the, the more you preach, the harder their hearts are going to get. The more you preach, the less they're going to really listen and receive. Now, I must admit, if my, if my ordination... If the elders of the, the, the church would have laid their hands on me and said, Bill, you're going to preach, but everybody's just going to get hardened towards God. I would say, I think I'm going to go do something else. So the question in verse 11 is a natural one, a normal one. Isaiah said, how long, oh Lord, how long is this going to last? And then he hears a word. He says, well, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is desolate of desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. You mean until it's sort of destroyed? Yeah. But then this, verse 10. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. So there's, a, there's some, a remnant, but, but still it's going to go through another time of burning, like the terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. And then this line, the holy seed is in its stump. <laughs> there's still, in, in the, it's like you get this picture of a, a forest having been burned down and there's just these dead stumps. And you look at it and you go, there's, there's nothing good there. He says, no, there's a holy seed there. In this remnant, there's still a holy seed. It's, it's like a glimmer of hope in the, in the midst of it. That, that's how hope comes, isn't it? Like it's a glimmer. People talk about a glimmer of hope, a ray of hope. 
medical emergencies, there's hope in just a pulse. When there's estrangement between two people, hope comes when there's a smile across the room. There's this glimmer, this, this ray of, of hope. And humanity, for humanity, the hope is in these dumps. Who knew? Who would know about that? Well, by the time we get to chapter 11, we get a, a sense of this stump, another stump. It's the stump of, the, the, of Jesse. And we get that. We know who Jesse is. He's David's father. So we get that this shoot from the stump of Jesse is David. There's one like David, at least. One perhaps greater than David who uh, will, will come and he's going to rule. Do you remember when we were studying Judges a few weeks ago? The, the last verse in Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so people began to clamor for a king. And God, God saw that uh, their clamoring uh, was really a rejection of him. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted another king, just like all the other nations had kings. And, and so God gave them a king, one that, that they would like, that they would choose because he was tall and he was handsome and he was strong and he looked like a king and so he said here's your king and it was Saul and didn't go well but in the midst of that God called this prophet judge Samuel to go to Bethlehem to the household of Jesse and he said there I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king and so there were some complications, but finally they all got together. And, and when they did, uh, the first son of Jesse came into the room, Eliab. And, and so uh, Jesse looked, at, I mean, uh, Samuel looked at him and said, he's got to be the one. He's tall, he's strong, he's mature, he's the oldest. He's exactly what you would expect to, to, to be the one. And God said, no. So then the second one came in. All seven of them came, one after the other, one after the other. And, and Samuel looked at each one and said, this has got to be the one. And, and God kept saying no. And then finally, Samuel said to Jesse, you got any more? Because, well, there's one, but he's the youngest and he's out tending the sheep, which was probably always the job the youngest got. Uh, and he was out. So they brought him in and he was a little ruddy looking. He had nice eyes, the scripture says. But, but there he was. He didn't look like much of a king. He was just a kid. God said, that, that, that's the one. He said, because you see, I don't, I don't judge by appearances. I judge rightly. He's the one. This, uh, this David. And the key to all of that is, is as, as Samuel was anointing David, this young boy, to be king, even though Saul was still alive and kinging, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and that, 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 that was it. He didn't look much like a king. In fact, you remember uh, the time that uh, David's brothers were out fighting a war, and David was home tending the sheep, but, but, but Jesse said, I want you to go and I want you to uh, find out how your brothers are doing. So, so here's some snacks to take to them. So I want you to go, I want you to, to, to go to your, your brothers and, and see what's happening and then re- come back and report back to me. 
So David does that. He takes the snacks that his dad gave him and he went down to where they were fighting the Philistines, the Israelites were. And when he got there, my sense is he's thinking, this is great. This is exactly the right time to come here because there was a big giant trash talking all of the Israelites. And so you can only imagine David running around going, who's going to fight him? Who's going to fight him? Who's going to fight him? And, and I get to see this. This is going to be great. And, 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 and they said, nobody's going to fight him. Who would fight that? Giant. You get the sense that his brothers are just annoyed with him. Because David thinks that someone should go fight him. But David, of course, doesn't look like he's the hope of Israel. He doesn't look like he's supposed to be the one to go defeat this big giant. But he is, and he does. Why? Because he knows the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And he knows what his people need at that moment in time as a champion. And he knows that he can stand on behalf of all his people and be victorious. And when he is, his people win. Didn't look like it, (laughs) but he really was. Now, David was a great leader, but deeply flawed, as we know. And he would eventually die, but, but, but a promise was given to him. And you can don't need to find this. I'll find it. If I can, I spilled a cup of coffee on this Bible this week, so it's still rebelling. But in Second Samuel, the scripture tells us that uh, in chapter 7, when David comes to the Lord, he says, I want to build you a house. The Lord says to David, no, I'm going to build you a house. And he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you see, David's throne is going to be established forever uh, in Israel. And so you wonder, how's this all going to work out? We know one from the house of David should be on the throne in Israel all of its days. And you get that sense. But but always this idea that a greater David is, is coming. And the prophet Isaiah says, as he's coming, there will be a shoot um, uh, from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will be upon him and he'll have everything he'll need for ruling. Notice how he puts it. He says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That is, he'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He'll have all the knowledge, all the understanding he needs to rule and to rule rightly. He'll have all the wisdom that he needs to rule and to rule rightly. He'll have the spirit of counsel and might. That is that he'll have all the right plans. He'll have all the right plans and he'll have all the power in order to fulfill all of those plans uh, and the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, He'll be trustworthy because his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he'll be one whose whole heart is to please God. So whatever he does, you can trust him. Because whatever he does, he'll do with the motivation, he'll do with the wisdom, he'll do with the plan, he'll do with the power in order to please God. So he's utterly trustworthy in all of that. And notice how he'll judge. He shall judge, uh, not judge by what his eyes see, or decide to speak by what his ears hear. That's the way we do things. That's the best we can do at times. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall judge the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked 
In other words, he'll judge righteously. And, and notice, almost always, when the scripture talks about judging rightly, it brings up the poor. And the reason is because we don't judge the poor well. Because we just simply judge the poor by what our eyes see. Now, the poor were significant. We become increasingly significant in ancient Israel because these poor would be the ones particularly that would be left during the time of the exile. In other words, in the 6th century, when the, when the Babylonians would come in and, 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 and exile the people of Judah, they began first with the most significant with the wealthiest, with this highly skilled. And they would go down the list and then finally they said, the people that are left can't be helpful to us at all. They're so unskilled, or they're so old, or they're so infirmed, that they can't be helpful at all. And so they just left them to fend for themselves. And they couldn't. And the Lord would look at them and say, you're not less valuable than everyone else. In fact, they would be known as the meek. They would be known as the ones who, 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 who really would look at the situation and say, we can't do anything for ourselves. All we can do is trust God. And he would come to them and he would help them. He wouldn't overlook them as we often do. But with the oppressors, the evil ones, the wicked, uh, he would kill. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. He wouldn't judge by what he sees. Do you remember? In the life of our Lord Jesus, there was this rich young man who came to him. And uh, if you looked at him, you'd think he should, be a, he should be one who should be a religious leader in Israel. I mean, he came to Jesus with a question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, would you know the commandments? He said, yes. And Jesus said, do them. And the guy says, I've done them ever since I was a kid. And if I would have been there, I would have looked at this guy and I would have judged what I heard and what I saw. And I would say, well, he should be one of our disciples. He should come along with us and follow after Jesus. And yet Jesus stopped for a minute. And I'd be thinking, come on, sign them up. Everything looks great. And Jesus could peer into his heart. So he asked him the question of questions. Gave him the command of the commands. Sell all you have, give to the poor and follow me. You can see the dissonance in the guy's face, I trust. The pull. He loved this stuff. He went away sad. Jesus could see his heart. I would have missed it. On another occasion, a group of people who wanted to be close to Jesus so much, they woke up one morning and they realized that Jesus was no longer with them and he had gotten into a boat and went across the sea. So they got in boats and they went across the sea to get to where Jesus was. And when they got to where Jesus was, I'm thinking, wow, what commitment. And Jesus said, no, I know why you're here. You're only here because I fed you yesterday. You just want more food. You don't want me. This greater David, he could judge rightly. 
Not by what the eyes see or the ears hear. But he would judge rightly. And notice the end result of this. It's peace. And I don't know if there could be a, a more beautifully poetic way of describing peace than what we have here. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf with the lion shall, uh, and the fattened calf together. By the way, if, if you're a lion, you're really looking for the fattened calf. Right? little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pray, play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's really bad parenting. Right? But that kind of peace. Now the Israelites would know exactly what this poetic expression would mean. Because they would feel like they were the lambs in the midst of the leopards. They were the young goats in the midst of the calves. They were the cows beside the bears. They were the ox by the lions. They were the children by the cobra, always vulnerable. When Isaiah wrote, Assyria was a great power. They were coming against not only the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom. They'd get the northern kingdom, not the south. But they knew themselves to be vulnerable and, and they were afraid always. In fact, so much so they were trying to make alliances with other nations in order to protect themselves. It was foolish to do. They should never have done it. Uh, but, but, but that was their sense of it. They, they knew they were vulnerable. They couldn't imagine this kind of peace. But, but, but he's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, a day will come when such peace will come through this one who comes from the shoot of the stump of Jesse. That you'll never have to be afraid. So verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. You see when the day comes. When the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. There will be peace. Because see to know the Lord is to know the Lord as Isaiah knew the Lord. He, he knew the Lord as holy. He knew himself as unholy. He knew himself as needy. And once he was, his sins were atoned for, everything changed in his relationship with God because now he was forgiven and free to be in the presence of God. But also his relationships with others. Because you see, once we see ourselves in the presence of the Lord, then everything changes in our relationship, not only with God, but with each other. Because once we see ourselves there, we realize that the best we can do, the best we can do on our own, is hell. The best we can do on our own is to be condemned by God because of our sin. That's the best we can do. And we need a champion to come in and defeat the enemy. Oh, we, oh, it'll never happen. And once we admit that to ourselves, and obviously to God, but even to each other, after that point, it's, it's really hard to be judgmental. It's really hard to be unforgiving. It's really hard to be empathetic, not to be empathetic. Right? Because I realize who I am, and you realize who I am. So here we are together. And glory, you see, it says. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him. Shall the nations inquire of his 
And his resting place shall be glorious. That is the resting place of the Lord. The resting place where we will be with him. Be glorious. Why? Because we'll have a knowledge of the Lord, all of us. In that place. And there'll be perfect humility. One person to another. That was their hope. Isaiah throws it in the middle of all this. It doesn't mean that all the other things weren't going to happen. They were going to happen. All the difficulties with Israel would happen in the northern kingdom to, 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 to be destroyed and in the southern kingdom to be exiled and all that. But this is a glimmer of hope in the same way it is for us. Now, the problem, the difficulty for us is, is that we sort of think that we have hope outside of this. I mean, we, we think that, oh, if the people in Isaiah's day, if only they had the knowledge of the world that we have, the education that we have. If, if only they knew what we knew about science and technology. If only they knew what, what we knew about, about medicine and life. They'd have hope in that, wouldn't they? But then we realize we have more books than ever before on raising kids. And yet... Kids don't always turn out that great. We don't always do that great a job. But we may know more about it than any other generation. But there's just still something lacking in that. And to take hope in our libraries full of books on how to raise kids. Hmm. Maybe there's something else we need. Or in marriage. I mean, we have books and seminars about marriage that, my goodness... But still, marriages fail. We know more about the body and about the mind, and yet still we are troubled in mind and we still die. Perhaps there's something else needed other than just that which we have in order to place our hope, and we can go very close into our own eyes and just, in our own lives and look deep within ourselves and ask the question, do I have hope in who I am and what I can do and what I know? And it's scary to think. And so Isaiah is saying, no, 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 there's hope. There really is hope. Why? Because there's this greater David. He's defeated the enemy, the Goliath, the big Goliath, Satan himself and, and evil. He's defeated all of that and, and, and even taking care of the sin in our own lives by bringing forgiveness and power even to live a life that's pleasing uh, that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, it probably didn't look like that at first. We I mean, have this young girl and this young man, and they have an announcement that she's going to have a child, and wouldn't everybody wonder about that? Uh, he wasn't really born in the best of circumstances. Not to the best family necessarily. He was born with a heritage of being Jewish in a, in, a, in a world that was run by Romans. And his disciples, even after he chose them, didn't do him much good. Their reputations weren't that great. They were just a group of uneducated fishermen and worse. He, the hope of the world. Hmm. And you remember on that night that he was betrayed and arrested it seemed to get worse for everyone and there he was on a on a cross the hope of the world who could see that 
What did it accomplish? Well, eternal life for all those who would believe in him. Didn't look like that. You ever wonder about, about your own life? You wonder, what, 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 what about me? What about my circumstances? What about the difficulties? Where really is my hope? And you look into your own heart and realize, ah. But then you look at this one greater than David. And you realize that he came out of a, a shoot of the stump of Jesse. Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us that he came from a root out of dry ground. Now, if you know anything about growing anything out of the ground, I know very little other than if someone said, you've got a root in some dry ground, I would even say, I bet that's going to die. Not if it's Jesus. You can look at our own lives and get the feeling that we're roots in dry ground. But if he's planted there, he can grow. You look at a particular situation in your life and you say, I don't know what good is going to ever come out of this. If he's planted there, good will come. We see it in him and in his life. Because out of that stump, out of that dry ground, he was planted and it grew grew into eternal life for all those who would believe in him. He is our hope. You remember on the night that he was betrayed to bread, after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way he took the cup And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death. Until he comes, what are we declaring? We're declaring that he is our hope. We're declaring that he's the one who came up out of the stump. He's the one who came up out of the dry ground. He's the one who brought eternal life, uh, planted even in us. He brings life. Now when he finds the soil of our hearts, he doesn't find much. So he brings it. He brings the faith that we need. He brings the repentance that we need. He brings the life that we need. If you're an unbeliever, if you... Don't believe. And you're thinking, I have no hope then. He's your hope. Why? Because he can bring to you everything you need. He can bring the faith, bring the repentance. He can bring life. Uh, Believers, we we know that. Because we know it, because it's true in us. And we look at our lives and we say, how'd that happen? I was just dry ground. I was just an old stump. <laughs> but he planted himself there. And now there's, there's real life. Is there hope? Oh, yes. In every circumstance? Yes. Why? Because he's in it. He's in it. 
And he's the signal to the whole world. And so even through our lives, he signals to the whole world. He's the banner. He's the signal to the whole world. Hey, come to me, everyone. Come up and learn of my ways and walk in my ways. Live in hope. Let's pray. Father, may that be true for us, please. Well, the hustling and bustling and all of that during this season of the year is, is everything around us seems to want to distract us from, from, from thinking of the true incarnation of this one. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and living among us and giving himself for us that we might have life and everything else seems to be pulling us from that. I pray that you would cause everything to pull us to it. That you would cause our minds to think to think of him and to realize that the hope of the world isn't in that which we see and hear and perceive and think is all good, but rather it's in this very one Jesus who's come and given himself for us. So help us, I pray, to know that. And so even at this table now, take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that our, our faith is revived. You can really know that there is hope in Jesus, for he has come and given himself for us. And in his rising, you declare that he was the very son of God. And in his ascension, we know that he rules and reigns, so we can trust that even in the circumstances of our life, whatever takes place still, he's here with us in it, bringing good. Help us. So please now, Jesus, meet us here that we might have hope. In Jesus' name.